Today is the last day of our three-part series. Um, I, I hope this has been informative for you all. This has been really meaningful for me to the point that I feel like we're failing as a church and I need to do something different. Um, and I mean that in a good way. So I've really enjoyed this. I hope it's been good for you. Today we're going to be talking about our last one, Koinonia. Um, does anybody feel like they need a, a, a recap on diaconia or kerygma? Then I won't do it. Okay. So today ends with koinonia. And koinonia is a Greek word that we encounter in the New Testament quite a bit. Um, and, it, and it's translated as, like in English, it's either, you know, it's community, fellowship, partnership, communion. Uh, it's typically one of those four. Um, it comes from the Greek word koino, which is just the Greek word for common. And the only reason I share that is when you think of community, the fact that common is part of the root should be a part of that. You think of like, for me, I think of the Titanic, the movie, um, you know, the third third floor of the Titanic versus the top floor of the Titanic. Like if, if we're talking about Koinonia, it's the party that Jack and Rose go to at the third floor of the Titanic. It's not the, the bougie dinner that they are, they're at at the top floor of the Titanic, right? So, but community is something I really want to deconstruct for us today. And we've talked a lot about community in this, but there's something that's very unique about Christian community or the community that Jesus is trying to create that a lot of us are probably unaware of. Um, and so just to kind of, kind of preface that, when you hear the word community, what comes to your mind? Geography. Okay. What else? People. People? Just people? Like community with people. Okay. Interaction with people. Interaction. Trust. Trust. Like that. I think of mutuality. Community should be mutual. Anything else? So I, I would say it again. Interdependence. Interdependence. I, I, I like all of that. I think community is one of those words that's not controversial. Um, it's a word we could talk about, and everybody in the room will not be offended by it. And I think it's because we have these ways of thinking about community that are not provocative. Community, it's, it's simply uh, a gathering of people. There's interaction, there's mutuality, there's trust. Um, geography is big because it's a community of people typically in the same area. I was listening to a podcast recently that said digital community is not real community because there has to be physical presence with each other. And there are like online communities, video gaming communities, stuff like that, Facebook groups, etc. Um, so one could make the argument that there is community that's not uh, confined by geography, but then one can make the argument that that's not actual community. So And so here's the deconstruction, right? And I want you to think back to memories that you have of sitting around a table eating a meal with a community of people. And that could be a, that could be three people, two people, 10 people, 20 people, but just think for a moment of any memories you have of sitting around a table eating a meal with people. And if you've got like a memory that you're thinking about, I want you to think about the demographics of the people at that table. Now of those demographics are the people sitting around that table with you in this memory. Now it doesn't have to be all of these, but I imagine it's most of these, of the same income bracket, same ethnicity, 
same culture of, of whatever your American identity is, same value system, same language, uh, mother language, to use that term. Does anybody think of one that it, where most of those are not the case? Say that again. You have a memory of sitting around a table with a community of people? Mm-hmm. And of, of the people sitting at that table, are they, for the most part, same income, same income bracket, same value system, same cultural identity, yeah. uh, same native language? Well, more or less, it was an Irish-Italian neighborhood, so, but they did get along quite well, yeah. surprisingly. Yeah. Um, and there's probably a shared identity there, Irish-Italian at the time, um, which I won't go into. So that's the deconstruction I want to think of right now. There's a term called open, or commensality, which until I was doing this crossing rating, I had not heard of. So has anyone heard of that term, commensality? Com I wouldn't expect anybody to. Commensality is a term that a sociologist created and it's, it, commensality is to describe the hierarchy that is present at table fellowship. And it's to say, one, that hierarchy is present at a table fellowship, not so much amongst the people that are around the table, but with the people that aren't. Meaning that we typically don't sit at tables to eat meals with people who are not like us in a hierarchical way, all right? Um, so koinonia is this kind of new, sexy word that a lot of churches have discovered. There's a lot of groups. We started a koinonia group about five years ago. I found out that even like 10, no, probably 15, 20 years before that, there was another koinonia group that this church had at one point. Um, there's a lot of evangelical churches that have started koinonia groups. And the reason koinonia is becoming such a used term is because it's esoteric, it's sexy, um, and then you get to say, well, koinonia just means community, and it's us being a community, which is exactly what Jesus wanted. Um, but again, the emphasis there is that most of the time, the community is with people who are similar to ourselves. Um, we have talked a lot about community in this group. We've talked about how community is a response to individualism, and being in community is a, a, a positive. It, helps us transcend depression and anxiety and loneliness. Um, and, and all of those things are true. And I would say community, even when it's community with people who are similar to us, whether it's value systems, ethnicity, language, income bracket, politics, etc., cetera, um, being in community is a good thing. In, in, a, in a secular sense, in an empirical sense, being in community is one of the best things we could be a part of. However, Jesus is not interested in creating community with similar people. And, and that's, that's the, the controversial part. That's the provocative part. Um, I was, the same podcast that I, was, I just mentioned a moment ago, I was listening to it. And it was this evangel and I didn't realize it was an evangelical pastor. Was, um, someone's dad asked them to have me listen to this podcast because they wanted me to give my insight into it, which total digression here if you ever want me to like listen or watch listen to something or watch something that's an hour long like 99% of the chance I'm not going to do it <laughs> please don't ever do that to me um, that's exactly what this was and luckily I listened to like the first 10 minutes and it actually interested me so I, I listened to it periodically 
and it was this evangelical pastor who was deconstructing, not deconstructing, he was talking about community, and he was bringing up all these statistics that we've even talked about here, about how America and its rugged individualism is creating depression, anxiety, loneliness, and all of these health problems. It's, it's leading to tribalism, which is destroying the fabric of our nation, and how community is the response to this. And then he starts talking about the Jesus community. And a lot of this podcast was very good in the sense that it talked about a lot of the stuff that we've talked about with community when we did our Lost Connection stuff. Um, what this guy didn't realize, though, was that one, he thought people were individualistic in antiquity, and Jesus was calling them into community, and we need to do the same thing here. We need to move from individualism into community. What this guy didn't realize is that individualism didn't exist 2,000 years ago, and everybody was already in community. Community was just the default 2,000 years ago. However, community 2,000 years ago was both hierarchical and patronistic. So, one, there was definitely a pyramid with the father being at the top of this pyramid, mother being set, actually, father, sons, mother, daughters, right? So that hierarchy was very much there. Um, and, and patronistic in the sense, and I don't mean pa patriarchal, I mean patronistic of um, a family would be under the patronage of like another family based on some kind of a a relationship, a beneficial relationship that has happened. Um, so community was present, but it was hierarchical and it was patronistic, and then Jesus specifically speaks against this. So I'm going to read something to you real quick. This comes from Luke chapter 12, verses 51 to 53. You don't have to turn to it if you don't want to. I'm just going to read it. But if, you, if you're looking, Sheila, it's on page um, 848 if you want to follow. So Jesus says this. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five and one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Um, any of you recall that, that text before? You guys do? Somewhat? Um, I, this is actually a text we have in our lectionary sometimes, too. And I grew up with this text thinking that, well, what Jesus is doing is separating people from believers to non-believers. And, and being a believer in Jesus is so important that even if, you're, if your family, if they're non-believers, then you're going to be divided from them. And I, I grew up probably 20... 24 years thinking this, this is what the interpretation of this text was, um, and that's not it at all. But what Jesus is doing here is he is attacking uh, the hierarchy within the default community in antiquity. And so look at the groups here real quick. Father against son, right? So when I said here's the hierarchy, father's at top, who's second? The son. So father and son are separated, then mother against daughter, Right? Mother and daughter. Mother is above daughter, so they're separated. And then mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Because if a son marries a woman, she becomes the daughter-in-law. She leaves her family and comes to this family, but she's at the bottom. And the mother-in-law would be above her. 
and the Father, or the sons and the Father would be above her. So Jesus is specifically calling out the hierarchy of the family unit in antiquity. He's not talking about division as such. He's specifically calling out the community that was the default in antiquity. Because for Jesus, hierarchy has absolutely no place in community, which in antiquity was an incredibly radical thing. One of the highest value systems they had back then was that the family unit was the most important thing. And the needs of the family unit superseded the needs of the individual 100% of the time. Now again, Jesus is not making an individual uh, correlation here. He's not saying individuals need to break away from their family units and be individuals because that would not have existed. But what Jesus is doing is trying to create a different kind of community. He's trying to create a community where there is no hierarchy. Uh, hence that text. Now I want to read another one. This comes from Matthew chapter 22 verses 1 through 10. It's on page 803. And this is a parable that some of you may have heard of. So once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. So Jesus is doing two things in this parable. One, if there is an actual wedding banquet in antiquity, it would have been exactly like our table fellowship today. The king would have invited only people who are similar to them to come to this wedding feast. It would have been people of status, and they would have sat at their tables. The people closest to the king would have been the most favored. They would have been men of power. And then it would have gone from there. Um, and again, everyone there would have been in a, in a similar echelon hierarchically. The idea that there would be people at this feast who were peasants, who were not of status, uh, would have been inconceivable. So you have this hierarchy that's present at a table in antiquity. And this is the, that commensality word. The commensality of that table would have been um, very, very rigid. And so Jesus is telling this parable, and he's essentially attacking it. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is not like hierarchical community. In fact, God detests that kind of community. Uh, he, Jesus uses very allegorical language. That God destroys their towns, even, of the people who said that they weren't going to come. And then, so who is invited to the king's wedding banquet? Literally anybody on the street. And it says even good or bad. Meaning, and goodness and badness is another way to create hierarchy. Um, you, ne no, you never invite anyone off the street because you can't control the hierarchy in that moment. But, and so Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like this, go out and find literally anyone to come to the wedding feast. Good or bad, just grab them, just bring them in. 
There is zero hierarchy at the banquet table in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I cannot stress enough how radical this is. I don't have the ability and language to say um, this might be one of the most offensive parables that Jesus told in his time. Because people living in that time would have, would have abided strictly by the, the, the hierarchy, that their own commensality of that time. So, and, and I want to highlight that Jesus' movement was not about community in and of itself. Like I said, we talk about community, and community is phenomenal. And when we can look at community from an empirical standpoint, it has a lot to offer against individualism. But even Jesus wasn't for community in and of itself. Jesus was specifically trying to create radical egalitarian community. Now, how do you create radical egalitarian community? It's not about going out and just trying to invite people off the streets. Here at Bethania, I would say four years now, we have been trying to connect with the Latinx community, which uh, many of whom live just in the apartments a couple blocks from here. And we did this because we know that a lot of the Latinx community is living under the poverty line. Um, if there's anybody in the community who would be what, what the New Testament calls the least of these, it would probably be the Latinx community uh, because there's a lot of undocumented folks. There's people working in the service industry, people working on farms, people who have less access to health care, affordable living, etc. I mean, a whole plethora of reasons. And, and so we've wanted to make that connection for a long time. And any time we would try to reach out, it wouldn't happen. And the reason it wouldn't happen was because a lot of the folks in the Latinx community did not feel safe with us. So even, even just this idea of like, oh, we're just gonna go create radical egalitarian community. The people that we wanted to reach out to were like, no, we don't trust you. We don't feel safe around you. We're not going to do that. And I, we, we got one lady whose kids came to Bethania, and so she knows me personally. And I did tell her one, but she was doing folklorica lessons right over here at the school outside. No matter what the weather was, she was doing folklorica lessons. And I said, come use our, our parish hall. No charge, nothing. You want to do recitals here, whatever. Just come use our, our parish hall. It's got heat, sheltered, um, you know, and, and so she did. And we had a folklorica class happening until the pandemic hit when that had to stop. That was the closest thing we ever had. Um, today we have that connection with the Latinx community. And we know why. It's the food distribution. So it's rooted entirely in service. So our, our whole thing today is about how Christian community is supposed to be organized first by service. I keep using the food distribution, not, not because it's so big, but it's like really our only thing that we do that kind of fits this mold. Um, but this is another example. So we've finally connected with the Latinx community, and it didn't start from us going out and saying, hey, come be radically egalitarian with us. It came with us starting with service. We're just gonna feed whoever wants to come, give them groceries um, for the week, and do our best. And it took probably a year before the barriers started coming down, and, and some safety and some trust started to be developed. So now we're two years into it, and a lot of that is there for sure. It's, but it's taken two years of intentionality and two years of service for that to happen. Um, so Jesus tries to create radical egalitarian community, and he empowers his followers to do the same. 
but it's not by going out there and opening the doors and just inviting people to the table. It starts with service. Yeah, Billie Eilish is my ringtone. <laughs> um, so when we think about community as a primary task of a Jesus-centered community, whatever that identity is for us, if we're gonna be in community with each other, um, and we're taking our model that we've been talking about for the last three weeks, the model is that we start with service. But the point of that service, the actual action that we're doing, is to try to break down the barriers that create that hierarchy. Um, and that's a really difficult process to do, but it's, that's the intentionality that we, we and, and so here's a way to delineate this. A lot of us have been part of churches that go overseas and, and do service work, right? Or go down to Mexico and do service work go away from our communities somewhere else to do some kind of service with people who we say are disenfranchised. We have to go to the disenfranchised to do it, right? So that service is not going to create any kind of community. It's not going to disrupt any kind of hierarchy because you have to travel to it, and then when you're done, you leave from it and come back to where you were. Um, so what I'm saying is the service that any, any, any Jesus-centered group is going to be involved in should, at least most of it should be local, and it should be trying to disrupt these hierarchical systems. Um, John Dominic Crossing, who I've talked about a lot, he really goes in depth. We're reading a book in our book group right now called Jesus, a Revolutionary Biography, and he really goes in depth to the historical context of the stuff that Jesus was doing. And so we hear a lot of stories about Jesus going out, um, healing people with leprosy, healing people with disabilities, um, uh, the, the woman who is bleeding, who touches his cloak, uh, bringing the dead back to life. And, you know, if you're like me, you grew up thinking Jesus is just very powerful and just helping people who have maladies, people who are in pain, people who are bereaved because their loved one is dead. And, and there's not a single instance where Jesus heals, cures, or raises someone from the dead that he is not at the same time disrupting hierarchy. And so a couple examples, like uh, lepers were at the very bottom of the rung, completely for a plethora of different reasons. But, but when you're thinking of hierarchy, they're at the very bottom. Jesus, as a rabbi, is not supposed to touch anybody with leprosy. When Jesus cures people with leprosy in our earliest writings, the ones that weren't changed by later gospel writers, he does it by physically touching them. So he is intentionally breaking down the barrier that is present in healing them. But even, even by healing them, he is elevating them out of that space and then inviting them into community. Um, the woman that is bleeding for 12 years who touches his cloak, uh, she's a Jewish woman. She knows the Jewish laws. If she is menstruating, she is not supposed to touch uh, a rabbi, and yet she does it. The story lifts that up. Um, when Jesus uh, raises, who was it, Peter's mother from the dead, um, he does it by touching her. Rabbis were not supposed to touch dead people. Um, every single act where Jesus heals someone is not just simply an act of healing them. It is, an, it is a radical act of erasing that hierarchy. Um, and, then, and then Jesus empowers people to do the same. We have the stories of Jesus sending out the 12, Jesus sending out the 72. He doesn't send them out to proclaim. He sends them out to heal, to cure, etc. It's, it's based in that service. Um, we even have this, this one bit where the, the Pharisees accuse Jesus of eating with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. 
know, when we talk about uh, commensality, about the, the sociology of a table fellowship, we even have this quote in the gospel from 2,000 years ago that Jesus, it's not that he's eating with bad people, it's that he's eating with people who are below him in the hierarchy. And so the accusation there is that he's disrupting this hierarchical system. Um, and so uh, John Dominic Crossan, the this, this scholar, one of the things you know he does is try to go through the Gospels and take out the parts that are not part of the historical Jesus. Um, and so when he tries to, to describe what the historical Jesus movement really was, he's got a way to describe it. He says, the Jesus movement happened in a pattern. Jesus would go to somebody who would have been at the lower end of the hierarchy. He would have healed them, right? So it's an act of service first. He would have healed them, and he would have done it in a very provocative way. Then Jesus would invite them into that community. So he is starting to create, he's pulling people out of their communities into a new type of community where hierarchy and patronage does not exist. So it's service first, then he invites them into the community second, then he empowers them to go out and heal others, to do the service, and then he sends them out to create their own communities. So it's this revolving circle. Heal, invite, Heal, invite. Um, and we miss this. We miss this as Christians today because this whole interpretation has been absent from us. And I would say um, my question that I started with about your own memories of sitting around a table with people. Like this hierarchy still exists with us today. And I think for a lot of people it exists from a very classist and racist and sexist place. And I think for a lot of other persecuted communities, it exists from a place of protection and safety. And it's hard to bring those two together, right? To have people let go of their own power at the top and to have people let go of their own safety and vulner vulnerability at the bottom. The only way you can bridge those two things is through service. It's through just radical, um, unconditional service. And so what do we get with, I mean, this is a very quick presentation, so what do we get here? We, we have our service, and what we see in the Bible a lot is Jesus talking, but what Jesus is talking about is he's pointing back to the service. When, when I did the Luke reading, um, when Jesus is giving the parable about what he's, he's bringing division, or the parable about the wedding banquet, that's because Jesus has already done the service, invited people into community, and now this community is walking around and he's talking about it, and he's telling new people that he's, that he's hoping will come and join the community. Look, I'm coming to divide your hierarchies. Um, this community we're creating is very different than the communities that you're used to. So the proclamation points to the service. And then the community aspect of this, where did I write this? you get is um, in that service you get community created by the people who are engaging in the service the ones who are acting you get community with the people who are being served right so now you have two communities coming together um, I'm trying to connect the circle for us here folks starting with service proclamation and then community 
Um, and I feel like I've already done this in a detached way, and now I'm just trying to come back together. So forgive me for repeating myself. My recap. So service disrupts the hierarchy. Service brings two groups together. The service creates community between those who are serving with each other and then community with those who are being served. And then that happens and it creates this open commensality. From that space of open commensality, from those experience that comes experiences and stories, um, and then that becomes the proclamation. We're doing this because hierarchy is not part of God's kingdom. Or we're doing this because we're living in this community and we're experiencing its richness. We're doing this because we are now in community with these people who are different than we are, speak a different language, come from a different income bracket, and we've been exposed to their experiences. And we understand the struggle that's involved. And we get to point to all of that. And it all starts with service. It moves down into community and proclamation, both at the same time pointing back to that service. Um, so that's the completion of the circle here with our three main points. But that's where the community is. And I think the, the main thing that I want to say is that when we talk about Christian community, we cannot talk about just simply community in and of itself. We can't talk about just community with people who are like us. It is intentionally about being in community with people who were experiencing this hierarchical nature of life that still exists today and breaking that apart and creating a space of true egalitarianism, which is very, very, very difficult work, right? I, even myself, feel like I have no idea how to do that. Um, one thing we're gonna try to do in about a month or so, we've been doing this food distribution for about two years now, as I said, and one thing we're gonna try to do is just throw a barbecue for all the clients. And, and the volunteers. Um, my hope is that most, it's more for the clients, but just to say, hey, we're gonna throw a barbecue for you guys, I think on a Sunday, because that typically is the day that, that most people don't work, um, and just say sometime in the afternoon after church, we're gonna throw a barbecue, you guys don't have to bring anything, you don't have to do anything, just come and show up and eat with us. Um, and I have no idea how it's gonna go. And, and I'm nervous, because what I think is gonna happen is as we have tables laid out, as people sit down to eat, we're gonna get our Latinx group sitting with each other and we're gonna get our volunteers sitting over here with each other. And we might get a couple volunteers who come and sit over here with some folks that they know, but I have no idea how it's gonna be. And I feel like there's gonna be this very obvious division between two groups. And I think part of that is trust, right? Is this really a safe space for us? I think part of that is a language barrier, which a lot of folks don't speak English and a lot of our volunteers don't speak Spanish. And so having to sit together over a meal and communicate with a language barrier is very difficult. We think the awareness of economic status becomes very apparent when people from various groups are sitting with each other. Um, and so all of these things co-mingle into this space and it scares the shit out of me thinking about doing it but we're gonna try. Yeah. Could you have cards that have like simple phrases on them in either language? That people like could be like, I don't know, a way to like ask questions or like to label food. Cause I'm thinking like, so I went to um, a language camp for six years and we had to sit at tables and you could uh, only get food if you asked for it in Danish. And so we had to be taught what the food was. We had to be taught how to ask those things. And 
if you have a language barrier between people that that it might be helpful to have like words or phrases. Well, I definitely don't want to force people who don't speak English to have to speak English in order to get food. Yeah, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying though that like it's a way to practice using a different language. Well, yeah. And to say like, oh, how how would I ask if I would like to try asking for you to pass the corn, or is the corn delicious, that I would know how to say corn. I like that Spanish direction, yeah, I do like that. So maybe it's just for like the volunteers that have cards that have it in Spanish. It's a good idea, yeah. Either way, I think it's just struggling through it. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, Bob. So, when all, the, all these things Jesus did to break the hierarchy by healing all these folks you discussed, does he ever bring the thing around by saying, now that we've done this with this leper or this woman, you, you all need to treat them differently. Does he ever like make the circle of community in one of his parables or proclamations? Follow what I'm saying? I mean, not like in such plain directions, but his whole Matthew 25, um, you know, at the end of all times, the angels will, will grab the, the grain and the chaff and separate the good from the bad and, and then says, well, the good is uh, those who welcome the least of these. And the bad is the ones who saw me naked and hungry and, and did not welcome me. So he does it allegorically. Hi. How's it going? How was Sunday school? Good. Hi. Okay, shh. So that's a blast. Yeah. I'm curious. Do any of you feel like you've been a part of this kind of egalitarian community? I just keep thinking of this one thing that I think you will immensely appreciate. We have Vesper, a, Vesper. We have, we have a dear friend in Denver um, who is creating a nonprofit called the Mile Long Table, where they're actually going to put a mile long table together through downtown Denver and invite and place specific people from all different walks of life next to each other in order to kind of create and force that sort of, you know, you sit down with a meal with someone and you look at them in the eye and you have a conversation and it breaks down barriers. Yeah. And it's exactly what this is, what I feel like this is encouraging. And I love that, I mean, I have always said that like, you know, the, the true Jesus is, not religious as much as he is practical in how to, Henry, come here, come here, and how to kind of manage, and not just manage, but like flourish in this life. And um, anyway, so I just bring that up as yeah. like, I, I, I'm not to my, in any, and, she, and he's doing it from, I mean, he is a, he is a Christian, but he's not doing it from a religious place. It's yeah. mostly just breaking down barriers. And so yeah. it's one of the best examples I've seen, and it really is kind of, it's totally validating what you're saying. Yeah. That's my best example. Yeah. I like the idea of having, like, that there is structure in that. I, I don't know if you said it. I pictured that you, I imagine, maybe I imagine you said it, that there is like a sign seating that you there come is. and it's not just like yeah. sit wherever you want because then you're going to no, cluster with the people that you know. But if you were assigned, like if you have two volunteers and then two people from the community, mm -hmm. we assign that, not the specific people, but you have to have a volunteer sit here. 
but that can start to break that, but it gives people enough structure to, instead of just like a free-for-all. Um, well, I think the intentionality has to come from those giving the service to those being served and not the other way around, but... No, I'm trying to give like a, a way for volunteers to... Well, and I'm not trying to... Th I'm not trying to come up with suggestions for our, our lunch that I'm hoping to have so much as thinking about, I'd like you to put yourself in that position yeah. of, have you been, I mean, like, I don't know if I told that in this, I think I did in our book group. Um, I remember in, like, high school having to go to a soup kitchen and serve, right? And then we were told after serving soup and stuff, and this was to the homeless population, they said, like, once once you've been serving for a little while, serve yourself and then go sit down. Make sure you don't sit with each other, go sit down. Yeah. And then someone else will come in and start serving, and it's kind of this rotation. And I remember sitting at a table with homeless folks who were, like, you know, engaging, like, oh, you guys are part of church, blah, blah. And, and, but just, like, the awareness there of the differences was so uncomfortable for me as a high school kid that I just remember that being a negative experience. Um, and being grateful, like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like them. But... You know, so it's kind of putting yourself in that that mindset of what would it be like for you to sit down at a table with people who are so vastly different than you. That a counselor that uh, was a kindergarten teacher, and I stayed with him in Minnesota, um, in Minneapolis. Um, his daughter was one of my friends. So we, one of the things that he did is he brought us to the Somali community and found the three people that had moved from Somalia to Sweden. And they learned Swedish before they came to the United States. So then he started speaking to them in Danish and Swedish, and then he invited us to speak with them. And he also started a program for the Somali community of like teaching women how to ride bikes because it's such like a bike-friendly community. And he, it was the strangest thing that I'd ever seen. That he just like walked up to people and would start talking to them. And I'm like, how do you, how can you just talk to random people? And he was completely at ease. They may have thought that he was kind of this crazy white guy, kind of was, but he was starting to like, he broke through those barriers of the hierarchy that, that existed. Yeah. And it was inspiring to see, and he did go back routinely to go and check in on these people, see how things are going, and started to build friendships with them. Yeah, I think it just takes time, right? You do it, it takes time, and you struggle through it, it's very uncomfortable, but you just keep doing it. Fast forward with churches and what you're saying, what would you say is the percentage, if you will, of churches that teach what you were just talking about? I have no idea. I'm not talking, I'm talking, I'm not doing. So I'm just talking at this point. <laughs> Lauren, you're handling up. Yeah, I think I'm just like feeling maybe I'm feeling a little like pessimistic almost because it's like, you know, like I feel like there's a little bit of like the white savior complex yeah. Yeah. that is making me feel uncomfortable. And then also like, okay, great. I, I see the value of like sharing a meal, but, but also that doesn't like change when you disband and you go back to your nice house and the other person goes off to under the freeway, yeah. it's like the the structures in place that actually keep these systems of oppression going. Yeah. So like, 
I don't know, I just feel, you know, like universal health care, like very basic things would really help yeah. that I'm, egalitarian community that we're hoping to build. I'm really glad you brought that up, and I think I even myself come off as like, I'm forcing us into these spaces of like, go out and find somebody and have a meal with them. Um, and my response to that is to say, again, this only starts with service. And it, it's, it stays at service until it can go into something else. But you, you can't go and have egalitarian community if that service isn't there breaking it down first. And for anybody who, I mean, you know when you jump the gun. Um, and so I think for us, the best thing to say is, leave it at service for now. Like, yeah, but you know, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just, what, what you're, you know, universal healthcare, universal uh, basic income, um, housing, it's set, like, just don't worry about the other stuff, just do the service. Just engage in that part, and the other stuff will come when I think it, if it does, if it. If it does. If, yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that resonates a little better with you. Well, I think, after all, you can have you can build friendships with individuals that are not necessarily from the same culture or class or whatever. And that is, that is important. Um, I was going to re reference also, we have monthly dinners at the senior center. And even though it's mainly white folks and old white folks, there's quite a spread of economics and, and background there, which I always appreciated, although, you know, COVID really disrupted that, and I'm still being very cautious, but that's an example, and certainly it's the goal of the Senior Center to reach out to anyone and try to provide service. Yeah. And so, um, that is kind of an example of that on an ongoing basis, because the Senior Center offers not only just a, a monthly dinner, but there are other services that are available, including inexpensive lunches every day. Well, I know when the Danish came here in 1911, one of them was a minister, as I recall the history. Two of them were ministers. And when something happened to the roof at the mission, they were the first to volunteer. I, I, and I think it had to do with religion. I really yeah, that's a bad example because the Danes came over here and bought 6,000 square miles, uh, or 6,000 acres off of the Spanish who stole it from well, the Danes. Well, we won't so get into that I don't horrible know, yeah. thing. The, the, the Danes <laughs> helping the Spanish with their roof is not something I would yeah. like. Trust it's me, I know. Celebrate. 18 years as the archivist at the bishop, yeah. I learned a lot of that stuff. Um, I, I, Lauren, your thing's sticking with me hard. <laughs> um, I, and I have a couple one, I think the church has failed so miserably in so many ways. We were talking about this at the beginning that, like, sec you know, the church, people in the church are always pointing towards secularism as this, like, fault. This is why things are going bad because there's not enough God anymore. I'm like, when we look at this model of starting with service first and staying there, it's the secularists who are doing it. It's the social service agencies. It's the social workers who go off and get graduate degrees and will be in debt for the rest of their lives paying off student loans 
who are out there working with organizations trying to help people as best as they can. Um, and, and there's this disenfranchisement that happens within the church where people come to church knowing that there's already a community there, but then realizing that there's no service, no like actual legitimate service breaking down barriers there that's happening. And so what they do is they go off on their own. And they say, well, I'm just going to go do service and I'm not going to have, have the community part. And I do want to highlight that community is integral to any what I would call a Christ-centered faith, whatever that is. It's not meant for us to go off and do stuff individualistically. It's really meant for us to be in community with each other with an endpoint of being in, in, in egalitarian community with those among us and around us and all of that stuff. But you only get there if you get to service. Well, and also, like, I, I appreciate that. And, like, also my piece with service, too, is, like, um almost like a hierarchy in and of itself if like unless you're really being mindful of like the communities but like as a white person coming in and saying oh i i have the solutions for yeah. your problems like yeah. i feel like that too like how can we be of service like with whoever we're serving with their voice front and center instead of you know, our voice front and center providing solutions that may or may not be asked for. Yeah, I think that's very well said too. Elevating. I mean, you saw that a lot after George Floyd happened, where all of a sudden everyone on Facebook was for black rights and they never did any work to get them. I remember feeling that exact thing. Or like, I mean, even more in line with that example and what Lauren is saying is that a lot of white voices came up to try to call out a problem instead of realizing that there are all these black voices that have been right. speaking to this problem for a long time. And instead of elevating those voices, yeah. taking them over. I remember Robin D'Angelo's book went to the number one charts of New York Times bestsellers book, and she wrote White Fragility. And it was Ijeoma's uh, Alolu, whose book was second. So you've got a black woman talking about racism yeah. at number two, and a white woman talking about it who's at number one. Um, and there was a lot of people calling out Robin D'Angelo and saying, this is where you step back and you know start. So I, that's a very good point, too. And I think finding the groups that are already doing the service and then asking them how we can help. So then asking how we can help as opposed to saying, I have the answers. Well, I think also, I mean, I remember back in the days with the free clinic, we became very aware that essentially we were a Band-Aid. You know, we were, we were making it easier for the county health department, for the county health department and to uh, just say, well, we're doing the best we can and people who we can't serve, they can go to the free clinic. Mm. And I think that that's a problem with many NGOs that if you're involved in those, you begin to realize that yes, you're helping, but frankly, if you really, if without deeper change, the problem's just gonna per persist. You know, food insecurity here is not gonna be fixed <coughs> by the food distribution. It no. has to be fixed by issuing, by about housing and wages. And anyone who's, you know, on the other end of that is gonna say, look, give me a decent job and I won't have to come to the food distribution. Yeah. So I, I think that that, 
So just to say that, that it's, it's one of those aspects that's heartbreaking, yeah. but true. Well, and thinking of hierarchy too, as we've talked about like the food distribution, we've talked to a lot of the, the clients that we've served and, 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 and conversations have been broached as far as, do you want to lend your voice to this? And overwhelmingly, the response has been, no, I have a white employer. The, a white person owns the farm that I work at, or a white person owns the hotel that I work at, or a white person owns, you know, it's a white employer, and, and this fear of being fired if they speak up, um, which is another level of hierarchy that's really terrifying. Bob, you, your hand was up. Back to your community dinner uh, barbecue thing. I would encourage you to don't shackle yourself with fear because what you're, you're talking about a starting point where you're getting groups together. And what, the, what the group has in common is itself. One has resources, one needs resources. And it doesn't have to be the, the white person's answer. It just, it just can be, we are committed to sharing our resources now. We weren't before, and you're welcome here. And that breaks down something, and it gets people together. And getting them together for the first time is, is the transformative moment. And I've experienced that unbelievably so in the last five years of my business, where I'm integrating with people that I didn't ever have a chance to meet or employ or work for or work with. And, and it's, it's, it's kind of radical. Like, I didn't realize that you lived in a, in a van down the street at night. Um, you know, now I'm going to help you. I, you know, I buy hotel rooms for people every now and then who need a shower, who work for me occasionally. I mean, I didn't ever know that was there. It was because of the interaction. And that's it's the interaction that has to happen. That's the beginning of it. Yeah, and let me back up to say, too, that for me as the pastor, I'm, I'm not as involved in food distribution as I want to be because of my work and meeting schedules, but our volunteers at the food distribution have been having this interaction for two years. That community with volunteers and with the clients has already been created to a large degree, and, and I would have to just point to that as well, that they've already done the work. Here I am just trying to use it as an example, um, and this this idea of having lunch is more because of the table fellowship narrative that I've encountered, but the truth is all of this work has already happened with our volunteers, and, and I'm just kind of an outsider looking in. Um, so I want to respect our time. Uh, I really want to thank you for your input today.